Well, this project was commissioned by the Minister for Education in Ireland, and it's really a kind of, the overall project is a review of the exam system in Ireland. They are high stakes, leaving schools, university entrance exam. So although we've completed the reports, we haven't made policy announcements, you'll be familiar with this scenario. So what we're sharing with you today is really rather preliminary. Um, I should also say it's a collaboration. Uh, there are about 20 authors of the report and we conducted the research with Queen's University in Belfast and Jane McNichol here. And in fact, many of our students were also uh, heavily involved in this research. So it's an evaluation of the exam system in Ireland and also of a kind of public concern there, which is about the predictability of their exams. So there is a huge hoo-ha in the media. Natalie Usher's here, who conducted our media analysis. Um, there's been a huge hoo-ha in their media. So in the newspapers, uh, the coverage of the exams in itself is quite remarkable in Ireland. So there's a daily analysis of the exam questions, how good they were, how fair they were, uh, whether people predicted that those ones were going to come up. This is all cultural, of course, and the thing that they're really concerned about is poetry, whether it had, <laughs> um, whether Seamus's poems were on there or not. And you can talk to any taxi driver about any of this stuff. So that's the sort of level of permeation of society there is about this uh, concern. So we were interested in uh, whether this was actually an aspect of the exams that was real, or whether this is just a kind of public narrative. Um, we looked at the, the media, the uh, newspapers. We also looked at the social media, what was said about the exams on that. And um, it's quite remarkable, some of the stuff we found. You can look, there's a YouTube podcast by a teacher uh, wearing a tracksuit. Sat on his sofa with some fuzzy cushions behind him. It actually, for uh, British people amongst us, it looks like a scene out of the royal family comedy. And he will predict for you on many, many subjects which uh, topics are going to come up in the exam. I've never seen that before. And the other thing I hadn't seen before was you can actually bet. So you can go along and bet on which subjects are going to come up in the exam. So, you know, what we're doing here is taking something that's a public concern and turning it into something that's actually uh, researchable. So we're having to define this, link it with existing literature uh, and so on. Look at what's relevant and what's already known and so on. So uh, the context of this, of course, is that assessment in many, many situations, many contexts, has actually come to dominate teaching and learning. This is something that we've known uh, for a long time. And in this maddest quote, he actually is talking about something that's been come to known particularly from the language testing literature as backwash or washback, depending on the paper. Um, and the idea is that the assessment itself is really shaping the curriculum, the form of pedagogy and the approaches students have to learning. So high stakes testing then, it's argued, uh, fosters rote learning, it fosters drilling of students to test content, and it fosters a super, more superficial education. Those are the kinds of concerns that there are in the literature about the implications of high stakes tests. 
and also that you don't get depth and breadth of learning because of the, the effects of high-stakes tests. So equally, people say, yeah, it's an interesting idea, this washback, but how much actual evidence is there for it? And it's true that most of the studies on washback are qualitative and most of them are small scale. Uh, there's an interesting <coughs> 2007 review by a researcher called AU, AU uh, and he conducted a, a qualitative analysis, meta-analysis of 49 studies. And he finds that there is, in most of them, a narrowing of the curriculum related to high-stakes testing, that test-related fragments of knowledge are what is taught rather than a, a broad understanding and that you end up with more teacher-centred pedagogy. But crucially, what he also says is that this seemed to be uh, contingent on test design. So this, for us, has been a real uh, complication, actually, in interpretation of the findings. Okay, alongside this uh, context, context of the dominance of assessment, we've also had moves in assessment away from norm referencing to uh, criterion referencing. So there used to be concerns that the top 10%, let's say, of students were getting the grades, even though they didn't have the skills that was required of them. So this was part of the argument that was used to drive uh, reduction of criteria for students to get the grades. So for example, and the reason for this photograph is people would say students can't even spell these days, yet they're getting the highest grades. So in this move to uh, criterion referencing, what you get is a, an exam system that's more transparent. You write down what the learning objectives are and you publish them. You share them uh, with everyone in a very transparent way. Um, so for this examination, the Le Leaving Certificate in Ireland, you can find online going back as far as the eye can see. As far as the, the last uh, revision of the syllabus, you can find all the question papers and the marking schemes uh, related to these tests. The syllabuses are all there for everybody, parents, students, anyone who wants to have a look at this. So obviously one benefit of this then is that it's, it's fairer because everyone has access to this. So in the past we, cri we criticised exams for um, being unfair and being related to uh, people who had good social and cultural capital. If your teacher was one of the examiners, it was going to be a big benefit to you in setting the exam. But nowadays, if this is all open and transparent, it shouldn't be so much so. So in the olden days, there was literature on this called test wiseness. And the idea is that just knowing uh, the kind of format and content of the test, test wiseness, is actually construct irrelevant. It's not something you want to test in your exam. So really what you want is all of the students turning up with test wiseness so that you can then focus on the construct of interest. Um, we also know from the literature on assessment for learning that actually sharing assessment criteria has positive effects on outcomes. So you can actually improve outcomes too by telling people what it is they're supposed to do <laughs> to get the grades. Um, but then there's also literature on, and obviously too, this is contingent on the task design and the learning environment, but there's literature showing that this can go too far. 
So in vocational assessment, Harry Torrance has um, called this assessment as learning, where in fact there was no evidence of uh, learning taking place. The learning was just conducted within the assessment and it was really looking at whether you had met the criteria and that was the entire course. So it can really go too far. Um, people worry uh, by telling students what it is they have to do, can they still think for themselves? Um, we've all had the experience of students grabbing us by the collar and saying, tell me what to do and I will do it, uh, which is very frustrating, obviously. Um, so there are these concerns then that predictability could be related to being um, overly transparent. We've put around the room some, just put on the chair, some of the question papers and marking schemes so that you can just have a look at the kind of items that we're talking about. Because as I say, so much, maybe you could just sort of pass them around and have a look uh, whilst we're talking. Because obviously so much of the interpretation of the findings really depends on um, what these look like. But also what they look like in specific subjects because they differ quite a bit. So at the end I'll ask if you could just uh, leave them on the table at the front. So here I have on this slide an excerpt from the, the biology uh, syllabus. And really, this is typical now of many high stakes exam systems that they outline the kinds of assessment <coughs> objectives that they're intended to assess in the construct. And really the point I wanted to make here is that there is certainly an aim here, whether it's reflected in the reality of the question papers I'll come back to, but there's an aim here not to just focus upon memorization of facts. So here you see that uh, they're interested in understanding for a start, uh, but they're also interested in things like application of knowledge um, and informed evaluation. So some of the concerns about backwash are about focusing on the lower parts of Bloom's taxonomy, but you see here that in this exam, and it's also true of the others, that when they specify the criteria, they are actually indicating that they want the exam to assess more than just rote learning and uh, drilled facts. This exam as well is quite different from the system in England and elsewhere. It's more like a kind of baccalaureate exam. Students have to take English, maths and Irish. Uh, and they, there's a point system. Uh, they take seven subjects typically, about half of them take seven subjects, but they take between six and eight subjects. So the points depend on how they, the best five, I think it is, that they score. And those points are used then for um, entrance to higher education. So actually in the public narrative, there's a lot of confusion about the point system and it's <coughs> conflated with the exams themselves and so on. But actually, uh, some of that is just not relevant to this issue about predictability. So these washback concerns are not new. This is not a feature of modern living, as uh, many people like to think. Here's a quote from, it's, uh, yeah, it's compulsory, I think, to have a century-old quote, I think, in the seminar now, so I've, I've ticked off that criteria, um, that criterion. So here's one from 1895. This is actually about medical exams in England, and you can see that all of the usual concerns are there, that the exams just really fostering people who can grind out uh, the answers that were in the textbook. Equally, these days, um, 
you see it, this concern popping up in many, many countries around the world. So we've had it here um, about the A-levels um, in England. It, here's an example from uh, the New York Times about examinations there. And um, in lots of developing countries, you get this concern about whether people are just learning what's in the often state-mandated textbook. So it's uh, a feature of many systems. Okay, so predictability itself. Um, I was sort of hinting at this earlier uh, when I was talking about test wiseness. Some elements of predictability are actually positive. It's not much use going into an examination having absolutely no idea what the curriculum was or what's expected of you in there. So test wiseness uh, reduces uh, construct irrelevance. So th things like knowing what the test conditions are going to be, knowing the format of the exams, uh, knowing uh, what performance is going to be expected of you, how you, how you get marks, what the scoring criteria are, all of those uh, we think are, are positive. Um, it's actually more tricky. The other two things I've got here, curriculum coverage and support materials. Typically, when people talk about predictable exams, they mean, are the questions the same every year? But to be honest, if that was the case in Ireland, they hardly need us to tell them that. So, as you would expect, it's a little bit more subtle than that. So, ultimately, uh, the issue is really about the validity of the exams, this predictability issues. Does it, do the exams actually reflect the construct that's being assessed? Does it sample well enough um, in a broad and deep manner? Um, okay, you might be a bit surprised to see support materials on here. What's that got to do with whether the exams are predictable or not? Well, often it's not the exams themselves that give the clues away about what might be coming up. Um, or even the structure of the exams can be overly defined by other materials. Uh, the department, the ministry, can send out circulars that actually specify the framework of the content, how often it should come up and so on. So I've seen examples of that. And also, um, a classic example is when uh, the textbook, there was a A-level psychology exam um, in the 90s where a new textbook had come out and the examiners set an exam that was, funnily enough, in the textbook that they just <coughs> produced. So there can be all sorts of other curriculum materials that just make um, the, the whole thing too predictable. So, so some aspects of predictability are positive is really um, the point I'm trying to make there. Right, so one of the interesting findings, I think, is about test-wiseness. In this high-stakes st uh, situation, how test-wise then were the students uh, in our samples? This is one of the things that we, we wanted to find out, because this hugely contextualises our findings. So we asked about a whole um, range of ways in which students can be supported in preparing for their exams. And I think these sorts of findings would not be the same in other contexts. I think they would vary dramatically. So if you look, for example, at how many had been given past papers, I think the other 5% probably forgot <laughs> or never turned up. You know, It's just a huge proportion. And you can see that 
most of them have textbooks and so on. The exam format is being explained to them. Model answers are provided in um, English and geography, although obviously teachers didn't think they were appropriate in biology, which of course is a very different assessment format. So you can see that uh, they were hugely test-wise, and it is a different uh, situation here because students actually learn the test format itself, they're preparing and, and uh, memorising model answers, and they're also looking at what's in the marking criteria, which I think is quite different from uh, the olden days that I remember. So we came up with a definition of what we call... Steve? Yeah, thanks. They have um, private tuition colleges in Ireland are called grinds in colloquial terms. So we used that term in the questionnaire so that people would understand what we meant by it. But yeah, crammer. Yeah. So. Um, we came up with a definition of what we call problematic predictability. So we say that basically predictability is problematical when you can anticipate these aspects of the, the test te taking to the extent that you can narrow the curriculum, that you have superficial rote learning, there's drilling on test content, and there's a failure to develop a deep understanding of the subject. So this can be very subtle. Um, the drilling on test content in particular, you can imagine a scenario in which teachers use a model answer in a very positive way to teach students the kinds of ways that you would address a question, but you can also imagine it being used in a very, very superficial way. And um, for example, some students told us about, uh, we weren't particularly focus, focusing upon the exams in Irish, but some students told us about wrote learning an essay in Irish that they didn't understand. So I thought that would interest the language people. <laughs> it's quite like my Norwegian, I think. <laughs> so this is um, it's a very uh, broad project and we're only going to look at one aspect of um, the research we conducted, but just to contextualise that too, um, we did analyse the examination materials, of course, we did those uh, 20, over 20 um, people looked at them in a systematic way. And we also conducted interviews with teachers and students about their practice in terms of pedagogy and learning approaches. But we're going to talk about the students' views of um, predictability uh, today. So, when we analysed the um, subject exam materials. We were looking at six subjects. When we conducted the questionnaire with students, we focused on only three. Now, all of these uh, government-funded projects are conducted in a very short space of time. Many of you will be familiar with that. Um, and we had to choose the subjects in advance. And as luck would have it, the three that were the least predictable in terms of content were the ones that we had focused on on a questionnaire, so there's nothing we can do about that. Now I say here that some of the either predictable or not, it's a bit more complicated than that, and none of them were very predictable, really. Um, and all of them had some sort of issue associated with them in terms of predictability. 
So the three subjects we're interested in are for the uh, questionnaire are biology, English and geography. In biology, the issue that came up was there wasn't enough higher order skills being tested um, as far as our subject uh, reviewers were concerned. In English, it was very complicated. There were two question papers, um, but really the, uh, the issue that rose, uh, rose most was that there were too many personal responses. And in geography, um, some topics did come up frequently. There was one particular question on soil erosion, which really did look the same year on year. And, uh, and some of them are even questioned whether you actually needed to study geography to um, interpret the satellite images and stuff like that. But these sorts of issues, actually, you can find in analysis of um, exam papers anywhere. It's very easy to critique them, much harder to create them. So these are the different, sub different issues and different subjects. Um, but mainly, uh, the main thing, that the main general response to these question papers was that they looked old-fashioned. And uh, we discovered that the last time they were reviewed was before Daniel was born. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and some of them were nearly as old as me. <laughs> so um, in economics, a few things have happened <laughs> since the 70s. <laughs> like the euro <laughs> so so you can see that this is really quite from the sorts of things i've been saying this is really quite a different context um, to many other exam systems around the world now the reason they haven't been updated more frequently is because they take seriously the amount of um, teacher training that would be needed to change the system now still i think we could do with being revised a bit more rapidly than even we see here but, um, so, you'll have seen the example questions, and part of this then, the reason they look old-fashioned, is partly about this transition to more higher-order skills being assessed in a criterion-based system, which doesn't entirely reflect their practice. Thank you, Joanne. As you can see, here's a nice picture of one of the classrooms which we have visited when we interviewed students in Ireland. And uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about the work we did when we started to develop a questionnaire measuring predictability. Because one of the things we thought was really excited, uh, exciting in this project is that uh, as far as we are aware, there's no empirical research uh, investigating predictability in exams. So uh, what we actually started doing was to look at previous research uh, which was linked to it. And we develop, developed a 10-page questionnaire which asked students about their parents, their background, socioeconomic status, and we actually used the layout which has been previously used in PISA. Uh, we also looked at uh, whether students were sitting for uh, higher or ordinal exams, because in each subject you can decide which you would like to take. And also, uh, we looked carefully at how we could develop the predictability scale, which I will talk more about. We had some previous research conducted by Ofqual and Murphy, uh, and also we used the washback literature, which uh, Daly and colleagues have been written about. And we looked at this theory when we were starting to discuss what is predictability and how can we develop items and constructs which can measure it. In addition, we have measured subject-specific learning strategies in biology, English, and geography. And there we used uh, the work by Marsh, which you all know here in Oxford, 
and Weinstein, um, but we will not talk too much about that today. We will talk more about that later, but that's also something which we are really interested in doing. And then we also have questions relating to learning support for the exam, such as use of ground schools and family support, which Joanne talked about. Um, and this was what we tried to do. Talking about the predictability scale, they actually, the scale in itself is uh, divided into three subscales. One about predictability with items such as I predict the exam questions well, measured on a four point Likert scale. And um, also something which we have decided to call valuable learning. And of course that can be discussed a lot, what is valuable learning. But it has items such as uh, the exam test, the right kind of learning, or to do well in this exam, I need a broad understanding of the subject across many topics. And you will be aware of all the literature upon what is called deep learning and having a complex understanding of complex, complex issues. And this is the ideal situation where we would like our students to elaborate a field and not specifically narrow something. To, so it's the difference between superficial and deep learning. Then we also have a uh, construct which we call narrowing the curriculum which has items such as to do well in this exam, remembering is more important than understanding. And I left a lot of topics out of my revision and still think I will do well. So these are typical examples of what we had all together in the scale, but this scale included 10 items overall. So this is our new contribution in this research. And this is how it looked. And we actually discussed a lot how we could measure this because we didn't want to give the students too many pages. So if you look at this, the way we have been doing it, we actually used a format which we haven't seen very much. If you look at 12A, instead of checking off for strongly disagree, you will, in English, for instance, write down one, two, three, or four, which is a different format. But since this is students age 18, uh, most of them, we thought we could actually start doing that. And the piloting of the questionnaire also showed that they were capable of doing that instead of checking off as they usually do. So in that way, we, were, we managed to gather a lot of data with less pages, which is always a good thing to do when you have this service. Um, we also conducted cognitive interviews, which turned out to be pretty good. We actually um, had hold of two Irish students here in Oxford who had taken the leaving certificate. And we used the method developed by Karabenek to go through each items and record the interview and talk about each item and have feedback and then adapted the questionnaire based upon uh, the feedback we got. And for me, uh, one of the things you can see I, I took as an example is like, instead of using words like the police uh, in, in this, we used the Irish word Garda. And of course, we included years instead of Shakespeare also when we talked about literature. But it's all these few details, but it turned out to work much better after we had been discussing the, these issues with Irish students. Yes? Yes, that's... Sure. So, thank you, Pam. It's a very good comment for our method when we're writing now. Yes. Um, also, we, uh, we discussed this also uh, with our uh, DPhil students. Uh, so when we, have, uh, when we had developed the whole questionnaire, they also read it and gave feedback, which is always very valuable and makes the working in the center especially rewarding, I might say, because we have so many good students there. 
And um, we also discussed and shared this questionnaire with a lot of people before we uh, carried it on and piloted it. We, I must say that we also have uh, had a very good cooperation with the State Exam Commission in Ireland because, as you know, it's hard to get uh, responses uh, these days from students. And they actually um, copied <coughs> our survey and distributed it to 100 schools who were randomly selected among the 690 schools in Ireland. And they took the boxes out there, so when the students were sitting for their Ireland, um, exam last year in 2013, and different days, Every time they were finished with their exam, they could pick up one of our surveys and uh, sign it right after. And it ended up with a good sample, we will think. Out, out of the 100 schools, we had 98 schools and 1,002 students' responses. 855 pen and pencil and 147 took it online. We actually thought more students would take it online these days, but it turned out that that was not the case. I should also mention that we have been cooperating with uh, Irish people about also translating this in, into Irish. So we have 23 who, students who responded to everything in Irish, in our Irish questionnaires. And we also need to tell that when the students had taken their exams, they would see this poster in all the <laughs> classrooms. So we had a little uh, prize draw for the students who participated in this and, and gave of their valuable time for us. But I would like to point out that um, we asked for permission to link the achievement scores to our survey. And as you can see, um, out of them, 22% of the girls said no, and 14% of the boys, they did not give us permission to link the exam scores to our survey. And we will look more into these details when we do the analysis now, but. Um, this might be the case that we have a slightly biased sample. If you look at this table here, you will see that of students who sat for the English and Biology and Geography sample, you will see that uh, on the scale with the uh, gradings here, and A being the best, that our sample, there are 14% uh, that had uh, top grades, while on the overall population it was 9.7. And you can see also that it's higher for the B and C. So uh, it's obvious that with more boys participating and with more of the lower uh, performers, we would have slightly differences. So we do need to take that into account when we discuss our findings. But I guess there's no surprise that it tends to be when there's something voluntarily that you do get more girls responding. So to just to share some information with you about our responses, if you look at this table, you will see that I have marked some numbers in red. This is taken from the predictability scale and it's, it's reported what they agree or strongly agree to. And one of the things which I was a little bit puzzled about, and that's probably also because I used to be an English teacher, is number C, the exam tests the right kind of learning. I thought it was a little bit disappointing that only 34% of the students think so and agree while in biology and geography, a slightly higher number of students agree to that statement. Also, I think it's a little bit surprising to me that uh, in English, they say, I was surprised by questions on the exam this year. Only 32% of the students agreed to that, while in biology, they said 73% agreed to the same. 
So you obviously see some subject differences here, which we have been discussing with subject, uh, subject uh, experts, and we will also continue to do analysis to try to follow up this and try to understand what's behind this. But I also think that it's interesting to see age, and I think I will be able to use what I learned for this exam in the future. Again, you will see that 36, only 36% taking English agreed to this, while 72% taking biology said that. I think it would be something they could use in the future. Of course, we do not know why, uh, and there's a lot of discussions you can do around it, but if you're thinking about educating students for the future and, and all this discussion about 21st century skills, then you kind of need to think what, what is happening also in, in English and in language and what kind of tasks are students given and why do they, uh, why do they ask answer like they do. I think this is something which people should look more into to understand why. So these are the same items, uh, all items part of the predictability scale. And first, we wanted to look how they grouped the items in the different subjects. And more or less consistently, we find that they group into three different factors. As you can see, uh, for example, in English, in the, for the first factor, we have items like, I think I will be able to use what I learned for this exam in the future, and also that the exam tests the right kind of learning. So this is, uh, we believe, items that are related to uh, higher order skills or that the students perceive that, this, that the exam is evaluating higher order skills, for example, rather than memorization. And therefore, we have called uh, the first factor valuable learning because it seems that they perceive that the learning experience in preparing for the exam is valuable. So that's why uh, we are calling this first uh, factor valuable learning. And I, of course, this is exploratory because we didn't have really a strong theory to anticipate a number of factors. Uh, then we have a second factor that it, includes items such as I predicted the exam questions well, I felt I knew what the examiner wanted this year, and also I was surprised by the question on the exam this year. And these items, uh, more or less, all of them relate to the predictability of the exam, to what extent the students feel that the exam is predictable, but uh, it could be that it's predictable due to uh, test wiseness, but it could also be that it's a problematic part of predictability, so we do not know what's the source of the predictability for this second factor. And finally, we have a last factor that we are calling narrowing of the curriculum because it includes uh, items such as I left a lot of topics out of my revision and I still think I, do, I will do well and I chose not to study some topics as I thought they would not come, right? So, we are calling this uh, narrowing of the curriculum. Um, interestingly, and we were very happy to see that we found the same thing in the three different samples. So these are three different samples. Uh, and consistently, the items grouped in this way. And we also did some uh, multi-group uh, analysis, so measurement invariance of these items, or already in the confirmatory factor analysis framework. And we found that the loadings are equivalent, or one can claim that 
the loadings are uh, invariant between the subjects. So the first part that I just showed you relates to the measurement of the model and then subsequently we wanted to see how these factors that we have just uh, defined relate to the exam scores, right? To the examination scores. And here we have descriptive analysis that relates the different uh, scales, some of the items in the different scales. I'm not including all the items here. We are just showing those that turn out, came out significant for this slide. So a statistical significance items, for example, are these. And the significance indicate that differences in the average scores, M is the mean, right? So M is indicating the mean. The average examination score is statistically different for those who agree and disagree with this statement. So we are finding, for example, that in biology and in geography, those who agree with the statement that they felt they knew what the examiners wanted this year performed better than those who disagree with that statement. And this difference is statistically significant for biology, right? For we find the same pattern from geography, but it's not necessarily significant. And then uh, we find exactly the opposite relationship with the items related to the narrowing of the curriculum. So it's a negative association for these items. And I think we were also happy to see this result, right? That, so students who, who say that they left a lot of topics out of the revision and still think they will do well, at least in this, only, only in two subjects, which are English and biology, they perform worse, as you can see by the comparison of these average scores for, um, for the two items that we have here. So overall, there seems to be a negative association with narrowing of the curriculum and the examination of the scores. And with a positive association between the predictability scale and the examination of and the examination scores. But then what we wanted to do is to test this uh, already in, in the structural equation model. So and, and the results are basically the same as one would expect from the previous descriptives. The results in, in the regression framework uh, are telling us that also for these two subjects, English and biology, we find a negative association. These are standardized coefficients between the narrowing of the curriculum scale. So this is now looking at the scale, not at the individual items. And we find a positive association with, with the predictability scale for the same subjects, for biology and geography. So we collected these data on these predictability skills. It's very exploratory. We were actually looking at action, what were the descriptive statistics is one of the things we were interested in. What does this tell us about this kind of exam? Um, and then we created these scales and then we related to the, to the exam scores. But then you have a big question about, well, what would you expect the relationship between these scales and the exam, exam scores to be? And as I say, it's highly contingent on the actual design of the assessments themselves. So, um, just to illustrate this, in terms, oh, I should say as well, the reason um, family SES was included here is that we were concerned that a whole load of cultural and social capital actually tells you a lot about 
the content of exams in the education system generally. So we wanted to control for that. But Daniel's also con constructed these models without that in there. And actually the relationships and the significance of the findings is, is the same. So you'd reach the same general conclusions. So we thought it's best to present it with. Um, but if you look at the, the predictability scale, so students, and this was obviously they'd responded after they took the exam. So students who then said, yeah, I told you I knew what was in the exam. <laughs> How well did they do in the exam? Well, they did a bit better, yeah. So you might well expect that in biology and geography. In English, I think uh, the questions are very um, wide. So actually you may not expect there to be a, a tighter relationship there. So again, I think it's highly uh, interacts with the kind of test that you have and the kind of, kind of construct as well, I think. Narrowing the curriculum. I think you'd have a pretty poor exam, actually, if it allowed students to narrow the curriculum and didn't penalise them. So you would expect, I think, a negative association. I mean, I might be able to come up with a, an example test somewhere where you wouldn't expect that association, but I've yet to uh, see such a, a test. And the valuable learning scale. So there, we were interested in were students motivated if they valued the kinds of learning that were on the test? That was a sort of relationship. So we expected a positive relationship, really. And we're not, we do get a positive relationship, but it's not significant and it's pretty small, let's face it. And I think one of the tricks we've missed there, because obviously this is the first time this has been conducted, so what would you do next time round, you know? Um, we had some learning strategy uh, instruments as Therese said, the Marsh scale in the questionnaire, but actually it didn't deal with strategic learning at all. And I think here what we got was highly strategic learning so that students, whether or not they valued the kind of learning that they had to do for the exams, uh, if they wanted the points, they were going to do it anyway. And so much is evident in this, this system. They are highly, highly strategic. So I think we'd need some strategic items. But given that they come from a different literature, from the Marsh scale, and actually there's some, uh, they don't entirely agree with each other. Uh, that was going to be problematic. Plus, how long can your questionnaire be? It was already um, 10 pages. Okay, so what are we claiming then? Uh, we, this is actually the first time that there has been any empirical evidence showing these stratospheric levels of test wiseness and these high stakes exam systems. So I think that's quite interesting in itself. Um, and it's also the first empirical study showing that um, on a large scale for high stakes exam, although I could reject some of those uh, descriptors, modifiers, it's this first study showing um, a relationship between narrowing the curriculum and test scores. So I think that's quite interesting as well, given that there's a big washback literature, highly qualitative in, in nature. I can't tell you how delighted we were. We're numbers people. You never get an invariant scale across any population, <laughs> never mind across different subjects. So we're really, really pleased about that. Uh, we should make it easier to publish, for example. Um, and I think that this really needs uh, more thought and more explanation that actually the relationship with exam scores, its contingency with subjects and with the construct of interest um, and the task design, I think there's a lot more could be done uh, to explore that more fully. We're also going to analyse lots of the other results we have, the student interviews and teaching interviews and so on, but 
um, particularly interested in learning strategies and their relationship with exam scores and with the predictability scale and trying to put some of these uh, analyses together would be an interesting thing to do too. Um, so as well as that, we hope that we'll be able to use this scale in other contexts with other kinds of exams and uh, examine its properties in different contexts as well. <laughs>